it is tough, especially because there are many instances where what's published in the press is not correct either. Also, sometimes, you know, the contemporary accounts might not be correct. And then you start actually digging into the legal documents and realize, whoa, that was a different story. And that's really part of the goal of the site is to get the history right. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester exploring New England today with the creator of one of the most valuable resources in Northeast skiing. First, remember to please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. Rob and I reference a ton of lost ski areas, unfulfilled expansion plans, and other items of interest that I itemize and explore in the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com. So go over there, subscribe, and pull that article up. I am also churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift surf skiing all year long for email newsletter subscribers. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it at stormskiing.com instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. All right, it's here. Ski season is off to a great start in pretty much every region with new resorts opening daily. That means many of us have choices and we want to know when the snow is coming, how much and where. Personally, I live within a five hour drive of approximately 150 ski areas. Is Western New York getting hammered? Is the J-Cloud activating? Is a sneaky southern storm going to pull me into Pennsylvania or maybe even West Virginia? Or can I make do with a quick run to the Catskills, Poconos, or Berkshires? It's more than I can sort through myself, frankly. That's why I use Open Snow. Outlooks from multiple weather forecasting models, updated hourly. Resort-by-resort snow outlooks. And one of my favorite features frequent email updates focused on the region of your choice. For me, I rock the Mid-Atlantic, New England, and all U.S. emails, but you can choose from more than two dozen daily snows focused on regions as varied as British Columbia, Colorado, Southern California, or Idaho, or on specific mega resorts such as Jackson Hole or Mammoth. Open Snow is a storm skiing newsletter and podcast partner, but I have used eService for years, and now you can too. Test drive Open Snow's best features with a free 60-day trial, including 10-day snow forecasts for your favorite ski resorts, high-resolution weather maps, expert analysis, and much more by visiting opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. That's opensnow.com backslash stormskiing. Episode 114, Jeremy Clark, founder of NewEnglandSkiHistory.com. There's a lot of skiing in New England. In fact, the six New England states host nearly 90 ski areas, even though they are combined smaller than Colorado by around 30,000 square miles. That number of active ski areas, however, is nothing compared to the number of lost ski areas in New England hundreds of them dating back to the early 1900s. And most of the ones that did survive have gone through periods of boom and bust, through ownership changes and uncertainty. There's a lot to keep track of, is my point. Luckily for all of us, there's someone keeping track. Jeremy Clark, the founder of the incredible NewEnglandSkiHistory.com website. 
This has been a tremendously valuable resource to me ever since I launched the Storm Skiing Journal and Podcast as what was then a Northeast-specific platform in 2019. But the keeper of this site has always been a bit of a mystery. Finally, a few months back, I reached out to the anonymous email address tucked into a corner of the website, and luckily for all of us, Jeremy wrote me back and agreed to come onto the podcast. He is a really interesting guy, a really smart guy, and he has a lot to say about the past, present, and future of New England skiing. Let's go. My guest today is the founder of New England Ski History. He spent a decade working at Berkshire East, Massachusetts. Jeremy Clark is my guest. Jeremy, welcome to the storm. So pumped up to connect with you. How are you doing today? Doing well, Stuart. Thank you for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast for a few years now, and I'm a big fan. Well, I have to say, Jeremy, anytime you have been listening to a podcast in any of the New England states, your site is a huge foundation for all the research I did and prep I did for that. It really is one of the best sites out there as far as documenting the legacy of a specific ski region. So what you've compiled over the years is a really tremendous resource for all New England skiers. So Thank you so much for putting all that together. Thank you very much and happy to be your show prep. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into that, I, I just have to get your feel for it because, you know, I'm down here in New York. I was up in New England a couple of days ago skiing and for the Ski New Hampshire event. I, you know, what do you think of this warm and rainy fall we're having so far? A little bit of a bummer to start with. It's a bummer, but I'm eternally optimistic like you have to be in the ski business. And I'm hoping that the mild fall will result in a good winter. I remember when we've had early snowfalls, uh, it tends to be a bad season. Like for instance, we mm -hmm. had that two feet of snow in October of 2011 and it was a horrible right. season. And then there's other times where the fall is just mild and then all of a sudden just mother nature just clicks in and then we're in good shape for a few months. So that's what I'm hoping for. You know, Jeremy, what, what's really impressed me in New England in particular in this early warm season is I wrote this article yesterday for my newsletter Killington went from 71 degrees to open for skiing in five days. And Sunday River's right there with them, Sugarloaf. We have probably about 20 resorts across the region open at this point. Maybe you have an exact number. But, you know, as you as you look around, I mean, how impressive is this? How good have New England operators, especially the well-capitalized ones, gotten at this snowmaking game and just really being able to outsmart Mother Nature to the extent that that's even possible? Well, it's absolutely critical, and I think they've learned from some of the southern New England areas where they figured this out years ago, that you just have to be able to turn on a dime and go from zero to 60 in just a matter of minutes or a few hours. It's really the best way to go and then to be able to get a good product ready for the holiday season. So it's really good to see that you know they've been stepping up the game over the last few years, even decades. So if someone goes to your site, New England Ski History, they see a lot of information about pretty much any – active or major inactive ski area in New England. But where are you actually based, Jeremy? Where are you pumping out all this information from? Because you're not, you have a lot of sites like mine, I kind of put that personality out front, but you really stay in the background. So what can you tell us about where New England ski history comes from? Well, uh, I'll just say New England ski history comes from the heart. No, it uh, <laughs> comes from uh, central New Hampshire between the lakes region and the mountains, I guess might be the home base, but um you know, it's nice location to be able to go to all the great areas, whether it's, you know, the whites or over to Maine or to Vermont, to the greens, or even down to Massachusetts. So it's a nice central location. Um, and it's just a great place to be and to, to write about this stuff. 
What does your ski season usually look like, Jeremy? How much do you get out? Where do you like to go? Do you have a home mountain or do you like to skip around? My home mountain was Berkshire East when I lived in Massachusetts, you know, growing up there. But now I do jump around a lot. I'd say for after work skiing, Pat's Peak is probably the home mountain because they have a great night skiing product. But other than that, it's, you know, having an Indy Pass, it's nice to jump around and, and explore New England and see how things are going. It's just great to have those options with the uh, multi-area passes. You know, I hosted Jeremy Davis, the founder of the New England Lost Skiers Project on the podcast a few years back, and he really makes a point to kind of have a rotation and hit some of these little ski areas and some of the big ones. You know, he grew up skiing in Neshoba Valley. Do you have that same sort of list where there's those ski areas that because you're so invested in New England skiing that maybe aren't on the rotation of some of the skiers who focus on the big time mountains and the Epic and Icon passes, but do you like to hit on, on you know, every few years at least? Absolutely. Uh, well, I do like to make a, a run through Massachusetts and check out some of those areas every so often. But I also like going to some of the small areas, too, especially if there's good natural snow season. Northeast slopes over in, uh, I guess, central eastern Vermont has some fantastic skiing. And you can do a few hours there and not get bored at all. Um, mm-hmm. Linden Outing Club uh, is fantastic, also up in northern Vermont. And then uh, down this way over in Franklin, New Hampshire, is uh, Veterans Memorial Ski Area. And that's mm. also a nice um, under-the-radar area, and oftentimes the skiing is free. Uh, it's an old oh, wow. ski bar and some you know nice uh, old-school trails there. So it's nice to go to those places in addition to the, the place we were discussing before. Yeah, Veterans Memorial is on my list for this year. And another place I'm meaning to check out is Campton. Have you checked that place out? Yeah, I haven't been there in a few years, but it's also kind of like Pat's, but smaller with regard to being a great place to go for night skiing. And they have a fantastic base lodge and pub. Um, so, you know, it's not a big area, but if you're in the area, it's well worth going for a few hours. Any other little places in New Hampshire or elsewhere in New England that people aren't really talking about, but you would recommend stopping in just for a vibe? I, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, you sometimes the skiing is is almost beside the point and, and, and you just kind of stumble into these really great little communities where it's, it's a place that you want to be. Any other little places like that? Well, uh, this one, you have to, in theory, become a member, but they're very welcoming. Red Hill Outing Club in Mobile is a fantastic place. It's all volunteer run, and that's just an awesome place if you become part of that community. Again, they're very welcoming. Um, other places, I thought Pinnacle up in Maine was a, a very neat area, small rope tow area, but great place for kids. But areas of that nature are great. And also, I thought Big Squaw was really neat. That's a little bit bigger um, whatever you want to call it, Moose Mountain, Moosehead Mountain. It's always changing names like (laughs) or P. Diddy. Um, But that's a really nice area and a good vibe to it. And the views, it was a little bit socked in the day I was skiing there, but the views, at least in the photos, look fantastic in the summertime are great too. Um, But it's great when you have local areas like that to just have a good community. It, It kind of makes it feel like skiing used to be before all the consolidation. So you mentioned growing up in Massachusetts near Berkshire East. And while we're on the subject of atmosphere, I'm of the opinion that Berkshire East has one of the most distinct atmospheres in New England skiing. I I just think it there's really nothing else like it. It sort of feels like Vermont, but it's a Massachusetts ski area, but it has this really rowdy terrain, but it gets more snow than you would think. Talk about Berkshire East and growing up there and what that was like. I was very fortunate to grow up skiing at Berkshire. So I grew up in the ever-growing metropolis of Charlemont, population 1,200. <laughs> and I went to the Hallamont Regional Elementary School, which if you look out any of the south, 
yeah, I guess the southern windows, you're looking right at Berkshire East. And we had a school program where once a week we got out at lunchtime, they take us on a bus over to Berkshire East, and this would be late 80s, early 90s. And you could get a lift ticket lesson in rental for just a few dollars. Fantastic program. And my second grade teacher there was Mrs. Schaefer, who was my favorite teacher, and her husband, Roy <laughs> Schaefer, who uh, was owner and general manager at the time and father of Jim and all the other Schaefer children. Um, Roy was my little league coach, so there was already a good sense of community. Um, but Berkshire East was actually, I'd say, quite different in those days. Um, it was really before the modernization where you'd pull up and you'd be looking at just massive wall of towering pine trees. A lot of those are, are gone now. And you really had two chairlifts that were running. You had the black chair, uh, which was this high-speed hall double chairlift. It was designed for California. I don't know the exact feet per minute, but I want to say it was over 600. It was a cruiser. You could hear it from a town away because it was an AC drive. And that kept the beginners off the main mountain because you could not load that lift unless you're an expert. <laughs> and the other lift was what they called the three, uh, which was an old Mueller double um, that served the exhibition trail. And you didn't have the outback. You didn't have the modern base lodge that you have now. It was a tiny operation in the base lodge where the, the current food court is. That was the base lodge. Everything else was added on the mid to late 90s. Snowmaking was not where it was today. Um, you also had some different weather over there, too, because at the time you still had, first of all, uh, a Deerfield River that didn't really freeze at all. Uh, you had raw sewage going into the river. <laughs> yeah, that was before whitewater rafting really caught on. <laughs> and then you also still had at Yankee Row Atomic Power Plant up the river, which they were pumping you know, warm water in. So uh, once that all shut down, there was a difference in weather in that valley, which I think helped ski conditions. But a lot of changes since then. But back then, it was definitely a, a different vibe. And whenever there was a lift line of more than two minutes, that's when the locals go, oh, we're done, going home. So. <laughs> that's so interesting. And I, I that's the first I've ever heard of that river. That is really fascinating. You mentioned Roy Schaefer, who came from Michigan in the late 1970s and picked up Berkshire East and kind of saved the place, right? So, so talk a little bit about Roy and what he's like and what he meant to Berkshire East over the years. Roy's a legend and Berkshire East would not be here today without him. Um, so Roy started, uh, he was from West Branch, Michigan originally, and he um, moved up to the Boines uh, for a while for teaching skiing, became a PSA certified examiner, taught down in South America for a while, and then built, I believe, from the ground up something called the East Lansing Ski Club. And then he really did well there and with some other stuff involved in the Boines and you know, had offers and I believe at one point was a candidate to be the first general manager of Bretton Woods. Wow. But, but then a good friend of his, Hugh Knapp, uh, let him know about this uh, troubled area in Charlemont, Massachusetts <laughs> called Berkshire East. And um, it gone through some um, controversy, I guess you might say. And it was owned by the bank. So uh, Roy went out and turned it around within a year and then um, formed an ownership group, bought it out. And fortunately, at this point, it was the late 70s, and we had a few good – well, I can't say I wasn't alive yet, but they had a few good winners of snow and built it up, added a couple chairlifts, including the Little Beaver chairlift, which is a whole other story in itself because it came off of Mackinac Island. I, I believe you're from Michigan. And, yeah, I am. You know, Mackinac Island is an interesting place, no motorized vehicles. So to take that chairlift down was quite a challenge. <laughs> um, <laughs> but fortunately, part of the ownership at Berkshire's uh, was Union Terminal Piers. Uh, friends of Roy, and they um, 
really helped to get that area going and get that chairlift off of Mackinac Island because they own the ferry boats out to the island. Um, so he built it up and then there were some lean years in the eighties, but he kept at it. And then as things started to turn in the nineties, uh, he just continual energy of improving the area and understanding how to get by in the bad years and operate a very efficient operation. So uh, he's an industry expert and the frugality of it and just the, you know, the, just a constant effort is uh, great. Is the reason that Berkshire East is still here today, because that would have been a lost area decades ago, in my opinion. So you had the opportunity to ski there, but you also worked there for a long time. So talk about working there, what you did there and what that was like to work at Berkshire East in those days. Uh, definitely a small operation back then. Very, very lean. <laughs> uh, I started in middle school. Uh, I walked up to Roy and said, you need a website. Um, and back then you had like American, American skiing company areas had just this one page website, hello world. So right. we built out the, uh, the first more robust ski area website with conditions that were updated and an actual trail map you could see on your screen rather than send away in the mail for it. Uh, <laughs> and then the following year, I, uh, they brought me in to do, you know, little kids ski school. And then the next year after that, I'm into high school at this point and, uh, I deployed the computerized season pass system and then took over the snow reporting, which, you know, that's a nightly job. Uh, if anyone's ever done snow reporting, it just, it's all throughout the season. You're always doing it. And then right. IT, and then they put me in charge of tickets, and then customer service. I went over and did some race timing. And it's really what you do at a, a small to medium sized area is you do a lot of different things, um, night managing, things like that. And I mean, a typical day at Berkshire East, you pull in at seven o'clock, Roy's already out there parking cars. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you need to, you go fire up a lift to get staff up the mountain early. Um, you know, if you're shorthanded, you might go out, work a shift in snowmaking. You might help get some rental skis out the door um, and all sorts of things like that. But um, it was a great experience. And another thing that was pretty fun, too, is especially late in the season, Roy and I would sit down and try to track down used equipment. And okay. up, up until the West Quad was or the uh, Summit Quad was installed, pretty much everything at Berkshire East was either old or refurbished. And um so that's what we do is we'd just be looking throughout the country for things to, to purchase and bring back to Berkshire East. Roy is a legend for that, you know, whether it's the, the former Summit Triple, which came out of Magic Mountain, or the, the um, top-notch double, which jumped all over the place from Magic <laughs> to Mount Tom to Berkshire East. But, you know, that's how you get by without having, you know, the big spends or taking on large debt loads. So it was a great experience working there. I mean, talk about that process a little bit, Jeremy, because you said something interesting just a bit ago when you were talking about how you used to have to send away for a trail map. And I remember that because I would buy these big ski area guidebooks back in the nineties and it would give all the stats, but it would only include a few trail maps. So these areas were really mysterious and it was really hard to actually, you couldn't just click around and see what, what a ski area looked like. And that's just one little example. I mean, the whole world had to come online and it took a while. So what was that process like of trying to track down used lifts and snow guns and all the rest of this stuff in the era when there were more ski areas and the information was a lot more dispersed? How did you go about doing that? Was it a lot of phone calls or did you have a different process? 
it was actually a competitive advantage that we were able to do that. Um, so this was before Google Earth. Um, actually, I think this was even before Google. Um, so you just sometimes you just go on a whim. You might know that there's something there. And I, I would use Terror Server. So Microsoft Terror Server. Actually, I don't even think Microsoft had it yet. That was still around. So I might go around and you know and say, all right, I've heard there might have been a lift here at some point, and zoom in and maybe see if it's still there. You know, this is talking out west, for instance, and then be able to count towers. And then this is before LiftBlog, obviously, and even a few of the other ski lift websites. So, you know, you, I might actually go to the UMass Amherst Library and pull down old ski area management magazines actually in hand and look at the old lift installation surveys and find out what the vertical length was. And then, you know, at that point, if it's out west, Roy will go out and look at it. If it was New England, we might go together. You know, we looked at the Highlands Triple in uh, Northfield at one point, looked around Snow Valley a few times. Uh, and a lot of the times it wouldn't work out, but every so often, you know, you catch lightning and, and you end up, end up with a lift. Uh, the, the Wilderness Peak Quad was a great one out of Berth at Pass. And then uh, the Mountaintop Triple, I think they call it, that came out of Ski Rio. And we had, I started working on that when I was still there. And that took, I think, three or four years for Roy to close that deal. But, you know, it was great to have a second lift up to the top. So th- I'm trying to imagine this moment when you, a middle school kid, are trying to explain to Roy, this really old school ski guy, that he needs a website. How did that conversation go? And how did you convince him to let you build Berkshire's first website? Well, I was still calling him Mr. Schaefer at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, he knew me, um, you know, and obviously from uh, baseball coaching and then uh, having Mr. Schaefer as uh, my teacher. Um, but I think for him, you know, again, he was also always about getting a deal and I could do it for less money than anybody else. If he had brought in a professional web designer, um, it would have been out of the price, you know, equation out of the budget altogether. But here I was thinking I might be asking for too much money, built that first website for Berkshire's for $180. I thought I was out <laughs> for too much money and he knew he was getting quite a seal. <laughs> Where did you, so you're a middle school kid and these days you can just go and, and there's several services that you can build a website on and it's pretty much drag and drop. But that was not the case probably when you did this. So so how did you learn how to build a website? Uh, self-taught like so many other things. I had a, <laughs> a demo of Microsoft front page. It ran out. I was a middle school kid, so I didn't exactly have a credit card or the ability to buy a full version. So I looked at the code of some things I messed up and or, or put together, should I say, and then figured out HTML, very basic HTML on my own, and then took it from there. And still to this day, I have very basic HTML skills as it really shows <laughs> the websites. Um, but that's how I figured it out. Do you remember what year that was, Jeremy? That was 1997, I believe. Okay. Yep. That's just in the time when everything and was coming online. And, and, you know, I remember sending my first email in 1996 and it was just <laughs> this, this moment. I was like, wow, there's, there's so, it's so easy to get a hold of people. So if you, if you look at Berkshire East over the years, the place has continued to be this really great ski area, very family oriented, very community oriented. But as you've outlined, they've upgraded a bunch of lifts. They put in that new fixed grip summit quad with a carpet load uh, about a decade ago now. And it seems as though with the advent of the Indy Pass, that's curious kind of on the radar for the first time for a lot of people. And, they, and they've had some crowding issues for the first time ever. So there's a lot there. And Roy's son, John, who's been on the podcast, good friend of the program, he's been on a couple of times. You know, he's really built out their summer business and really built out the ski business and made it a sustainable operation. Just 
going over all of that, what's just been your thoughts on the evolution of Berkshire East since that mid nineties period when you worked there? I think I look at it as a few different periods because it was still very frugal from the, the mid nineties all the way until the mid two thousands when it was still owned technically by Union Terminal Piers. And again, Berkshire East was just this outlier for that company. It was a, a big company with the ferry boats. They had another ski area in Michigan called Cannonsburg. And then when when Roy and his sons bought the ski area outright in 2007 is really when things took off. And they knew early on that Berkshire East could not just be the seasonal operation, which it was for so many years. Uh, so they went four season, well, three season, I guess, technically in 2009. And then they were also looking to the future in terms of energy. So, you know, you saw the wind turbine going in the solar farm. Um, so it's changed a lot since then. And it's a little bit bittersweet because I still remember Berkshire's of the old days where you get to the top of that summit double when it rarely ran. And you just saw this wall of trees up there too. And there was nobody there. The trails were still quirky. They hadn't been cleaned up and homogenized like they have been now. There were narrower trails, more random ledge and stuff. But on the other hand, though, it's important for Berkshire's to be sustainable and to be a, a strong business. So, you know, you have to give and take, and, you know, it's great also to see a lot of people discover how great a skier it is. So I haven't been there on a crowded day yet, um, but it's good to see people discovering just how great a skier you, you can go to without having to drive all the way up to New Hampshire or Vermont. And they are planning an expansion there. Last time I spoke to John Schaefer, he didn't have any more details. But what can you tell us about that planned expansion and how that might give a little bit more room to roam around there? I think that expansion, I assume you're talking about going off of um, really the Shelburne Falls side of the ski area, if yeah. you will. Uh, because they have, Berkshire East also owns a lot of other land, including the next mountain back towards Holly. But I, I don't think you'll see skiing there anytime soon. You have a zip line over there, but mm -hmm. we used to kind of draw napkins way back when. Just, you know, just, <laughs> almost like a fantasy baseball version of, or ski area tycoon, I guess you might say. Um, <laughs> I think that'd be a, a great expansion. Um, it'll be different having two different base areas, but uh, one of the things I'm most excited about, you know, when they eventually do complete that expansion is just to see that view towards the Shelburne Falls Valley, because right now you get to look up towards Roe and Monroe and up towards Vermont from the current view. And then you get to see over to, you know, even towards Savoy and stuff from the, the very top coming down like Outback. But to see that view uh, on the slopes, it's a very unique view. I've seen it from you know higher elevations there, I think would be great. And then the terrain, I believe it's more intermediate unless they, they go narrow. So that'll be good because the terrain at Berkshire East is still challenging. They have cut some, you know, some nicer upper novice, lower intermediate trails, but to have more intermediate terrain from the top would certainly be a, a good thing. So I love Berkshire East, personal favorite of mine. And as I said, it's becoming more well-known. One ski area that's not well known, but it is 100 years old this year is Eagle Brook. And I think probably 99% of people listening to this podcast haven't heard of Eagle Brook, even if they live in the area. So tell us about Eagle Brook and what in your experience at that ski area. So Eagle Brook is a small private boarding school, grades six through nine. It's uh, located across the valley from Deerfield Academy. So it basically feeds into that prep school. Um, you know, some famous alumni are the current King of Jordan. Uh, if you like early 2000s politics, Scooter Libby. And then <laughs> if you're into the ski business, uh, George Mackenberg, uh, the founder of Wildcat, went there. And he actually donated, I believe, at least two of the ski lifts that, that once stood there. It's a campus of about 700 acres. Uh, I was fortunate to go there as a, a day student on scholarship. Uh, this would be in the mid to late 90s. 
And it has its own private ski area with snowmaking and grooming and the vertical drop is about 450 feet or so. So when you're driving up Interstate 91, either on your way to Berkshire East or to Vermont, if you're driving northbound, you look to your right, you're going to see all of a sudden just this man-made snow going right up the side of the mountain. That's that's Eagle Brook private ski area. And really the only way you can ski there is if you're a student, if you happen to be racing there or if you're an alumnus. But it's a fantastic ski area. Um, you know, it's kind of like a slightly smaller version of Pat's Peak. You know, the main race trail has a nice pitch to it. There's a steeper trail called the Nose Dive, and there's a few cruiser trails as well. And it's really for, I think, maybe about 100 to 150 kids will ski there on a given day for about an hour or two for about two months of the year. So it, you basically have your private ski area. So um, to be able to do the rec, my first year there, I, I being allegedly a smart kid, I, I played basketball and didn't ski the first <laughs> year. That Fortunately, I learned from that, but I was able to do recreational skiing for the second year and then junior ski patrol for the third year. And it was just amazing to be able to walk out of the classroom, boot up and then hop on the ski lift for you know, an hour or two. So that's not the only private academy owned ski area in New England. Can you tell us about any of the other ones? Um, there's one actually not too far from me called Proctor Academy. And I don't want to give too much away, but every so often <laughs> they open it to the public for a night and they, they spoil okay. your rotten. And that's a smaller area than Eagle Brook. They have a T-bar and a couple of uh, trails with snowmaking and night skiing. And they have another trail that I've never been able to do because it's uh, natural snow and not open at night. But that's a neat one. Um, I'm trying to think of, I don't know if I've been able to ski any of the other ones, but there's a few like small college areas and I think one or two other prep school areas. Uh, Cardigan, which was Eagle Brook's rival. We hate Cardigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a very small <laughs> rope tow area. They have a larger, air, slightly larger area that's now lost um, nearby with a T-bar. Um, but yeah, so there's still a few schools out there that have their own ski areas. So ultimately you left Berkshire East and it's funny, the, the, the way you're telling this story is the way that Mostly I speak with mountain general managers on this podcast and a lot of their stories start that way. They were young and they worked on some quirky project and worked their way up. But ultimately you left. What made you decide to leave the ski industry rather than make that your career? So uh, I got out of college and I was still at Berkshire East. And then uh, another one of the Schaefer children recruited me into their business. Uh, so I was I was working that job full time and working full time at Berkshire East for two years. And this other job allowed me to work remotely. And I started looking at New Hampshire and really fell in love with the mountains. And after a while, I said, you know what? Um, I'd be able to ski a lot more if I didn't work in the ski business. And I'd be able to spend more time in the mountains. So I moved up to New Hampshire, I guess, about 15 years ago. I miss Berkshire East. I miss being in the ski business every day. This time of year, I, I get that feeling in my bones that I need to be out there and getting the ski area ready to go for whatever job I'm doing. But um, it was a good move. I met my wife up here and I get to ski a lot more. So, uh, but I do miss the business. It's so funny you say that, Jeremy, because the more I do this podcast, the less I want to work in the ski business because I realize that the folks who run these mountains are married to them. And very few of them, unless they run some of these ski areas in the Midwest that closed down in mid-March, really get to ski around. And I really, like you, value that variety and moving around. So it, it's it's, I really like talking about it, but I don't think that I want to be the guy doing it. It's a special breed. And <laughs> I guess once you're in it, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. But if, if your number one priority is skiing, then running a ski area is probably not the thing for you unless you have a short season. <laughs> at Berkshire East at the time, we had a fairly short season. We didn't really start snowmaking until December. And then we were usually done 
about a week after St. Patrick's Day. So I was able to go around and explore late March, early April. But uh, this concept of being able to ski in, in uh, January or February was very foreign to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are lots of ways to be involved in skiing. And both you and I have found one, which is to create a media platform. So you've maintained that anchor in the ski industry with this, as I said, really remarkable website that you've created, newenglandskihistory.com. Talk about this website, Jeremy. When did you found it? Why and how? It was a gradual process. So as I mentioned, I left Berkshire East in 2007. I still, you know, kind of dabbled down there and every so often I'd, you know, help them out with something, you know, whether it's like finding a few snow guns or whatever. But um, I I kind of transitioned out of it over time, but I still had an attachment to Berkshire East. So for a while I had a, a Berkshire East history site going. And then as I started exploring the mountains of New Hampshire more, I started looking at abandoned uh, ski trails and, and also these uh, concepts of what I call cancel ski areas where they had this big proposal to build a ski area and then never pulled the trigger. So I started putting some of that stuff together in various sites. And then about 2010, I realized you might as well just put all this stuff together. So that's when I bought the domain, newenglandskihistory.com and, and gradually started pulling everything together. Um, all in one place. And then it just continues to grow from there. As I think of some new thing I might do, I might just um, build on to it. But yeah, so it's been a long process. So how long did it take for word to spread? You know, it does take a while. Social media helps a lot, but it does take a while for people to find you. They're used to going where they're used to going. So how long did it take for New England ski history to establish itself as a resource? And how did you spread that story? It took off pretty quickly, I think, because I had those niche focuses originally. For instance, the canceled ski areas, that ended up in the Boston Globe in 2010, right around Mm. when the website launched, uh, because I think it was just something new. Um, And also, you know, people already had a focus on ski history websites because of Jeremy Davis's fantastic site. And I've known Jeremy now since the late 90s. He was still in college when he came by Berkshire East, knocked on the ticket window and said, hey, have you ever seen my website? Um, (laughs) So, you know, there's already a good buzz that he had created really as a forerunner for that. Um, And then it it grew. Social media certainly helped. I used to have it on some of the social media websites, but I I find that to be kind of a catch-22 also because, you know, after a while, the content gets pulled onto the social media rather than going to the site. Um, But it just organically grew, I would say. And and when ski area websites actually link to you, I think that's a big help too because then people can see the definitive history and, and start learning more about, you know, the ski areas they love, you know, whether it's going through the trail map archives or the ski lift archives or even reading through the history. So I think overall it's just been an organic process. So the site is extremely deep and extremely well-researched. What's driving this passion, Jeremy? What, what, what inspired you to create this resource that anyone can access for free? I was really curious about ski history, even at a young age, um, most of my childhood, I was driving by Mount Mohawk Ski Area in uh, Shelburne, which last I knew, I believe, is owned by, I'll just say, the the wife of a very famous, uh, now controversial comedian. Um, so okay. seeing that, uh, we'll say, you know, he did Fat Albert and a few other things. Okay. <laughs> He's a resident or resident of Shelburne, Buckland area. But uh, uh, so going by there, um, 
in elementary school, a friend of mine lived at the Chickley Alp ski area. So I got to look around this abandoned ski area, not even really knowing what it was at the time. And then being at Berkshire East, there was all this abandoned infrastructure from the original Thunder Mountain operation um, to half-built lifts, which are no longer there. But for a while, there were these half-built lifts from that bankruptcy in the 70s and then the abandoned buildings. So that sparked an early interest for me. And then also just uh, being in the ground level of watching Jeremy Davis's uh, lost, fantastic lost ski area sites uh, build up. And then realizing that there was this big vacuum of, of operating ski areas where there wasn't much history out there. And in many cases where it was out there, there were a lot of inaccuracies. So over time, I've been trying to correct those and, and learn. And I've been learning and, and I've caught lots of errors on the site as well. Um, but I don't know I just like to see history out there and, and for it to be correct. And I, I'd say that's the goal. And um, it's really more of a passion. That's why I haven't tried to monetize it. And I have no intention of ever having a paywall or anything like that. So the, the site is really layered, as I mentioned, and the, the center of it from as far as I can tell is these ski area profiles, which are super detailed. They have the history of the mountain, they have stats, photos, history of the lift fleet, including lifts that have been removed. And one thing I find really valuable, historic opening and closing dates, historic lift ticket and season pass prices. So how many of these ski area profiles have you created? I'm not sure if you have an exact number on that, but you have them for both active and lost ski areas. And as you mentioned, some for proposed, which is really cool. So how many do you have and what is your process for creating those profiles? Because each one is 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 very deep and, and has a ton of information on it. Uh, last count, not including the canceled ones, because I don't really have those built into the database, but of the operational ones and of the notable lost ones, the last count I had was uh, 175, I believe. Uh, so so quite a few. Um, the, the original genesis of creating the profile, though, was really more of a database function where I needed to be able to tie all these different projects together, whereas the Lyft database, which the Lyft database actually kind of came through my notes of when we were looking to find used lifts from many years ago. I, I, I didn't need the notes anymore, so I compiled them to that database, bringing in the trail maps, bringing in the vintage ads. So that's really where the profiles came from and also some of the pricing I still had. And then from there, just... For me, like the you mentioned, the opening and closing dates, that's really more of just a, a personal interest where I, I'm really curious about the history because I feel we have this perception that, oh, the winners are just getting poorer and poorer as time goes. And I want to be able to either quantify that or prove it wrong. And as I look at it, I don't know if that's the case anymore going through this process. We can go back to the 30s, basically. And boy, there were some bad winners back then. You know, there was one winter where I believe Bosque, and I don't have the exact dates, but Bosque, I believe, was open one day. And then in the late 40s, there were back-to-back horrible winters. It was so bad that I, I found one reference where I don't know how serious they were, but they were thinking about um, maybe not doing skiing at Mount Sunapee anymore because the first two winters, they had no skiing until like late January. Um, so that's been kind of the interesting thing about putting that together. And then, you know, from a database perspective, it really made sense to compile it into one profile per ski area, but then also have different functions where you can look at particular focuses if you want to in different sections. So when I spoke to Jeremy Davis, he said that people just started sending him things when he created his site and, and they, all this passion came out for people like, Oh, what about this? You know, here's a trail map from this ski area that was open for one year in New York back in 1952 or whatever. So it, how much of your site has been 
sort of crowdsourced in that way where people have alerted you to things? And how much of it is, one thing I'm always impressed by as I read through your site, Jeremy, is you pull up so many archived newspaper articles from the local papers because the local papers really, I mean, the local media was really tuned into this stuff and it used to be much larger than it is now as far as the the depth and breadth of their coverage. So so what, what does that look like as far as how much you do yourself of digging around in databases and libraries and online and how much of it is folks sending you things? It's a mixture of both. Um, I would say that a good portion of it is me digging through various either newspaper archives, as you mentioned. I'll go through registries of deeds. Um, I'll go through all sorts of just random things. Actually, some exercises I used to do to try to track down lifts. Um, but there's definitely a crowdsourcing element and, you know, Sometimes just out of the blue, you get a, a great email. I remember a few years ago, I got an email from Press Smith, uh, founder of Killing oh, Man. Oh, it was a great exchange. And then uh, more recently, I received an email from the the daughter of uh, the Boston Hill uh, general manager, Bob Dunn, from a long time. And you know she gave me these great photos. So um, it, it's always great to have crowdsourcing. And then there are a few folks who they'll still be out and about. Uh, for instance, uh, Ian is a, a gentleman who every so often will send me a bunch of recent lift photos that help build out the database for areas I might not get to. So a lot of crowdsourcing and, and I welcome it. And I know that it's uh, been fantastic for Jeremy to get all these contributions too, because otherwise you're never going to be able to track all this stuff down. <laughs> your own. So when it comes to the law ski areas or even some of the smaller ski areas, how much do you or how important is it for you to get out and see it for yourself and hike these areas or ski these areas in the case of a still operating but smaller ski area? Because I I tell people all the time, you know, it's a lot easier for me to get the general manager of Killington or Sunday River or Sugarbush on the podcast because those ski areas have human infrastructure, right? They have a communications department, they have marketing teams, they have people who can connect me with people and they're used to doing PR. Whereas someplace like Lonesome Pine, Maine, the head of the board of directors randomly reached out to me, but I, I would have had no way of getting hold of him otherwise. And a lot of these small ski areas, that's the case. It's just, it's not clear who owns them. It's not clear how to get a hold of them. If you send an email to a generic contact, they might not get back to you. So, so how much do you have to actually go out when you're researching and put your boots on the ground and see this stuff for yourself? I think I've skied, oh, Boy, I, almost every skier in New England at this point, it's really wow. more of a hobby. Um, yeah. There's a few private ones I haven't been to. And then I have a couple rope tow areas, I think, in Vermont that I still haven't skied that maybe I'll track down the next year or two. Um, but it's really just a hobby to go to those areas. A lot of it now with the interwebs being what it is, like you can kind of figure out. It Sometimes it takes a little bit of a, you know, an obstacle course to find out, but you can kind of figure out what the ownership is and, and things like that. But I, it, especially for the small areas, as you mentioned, though, it, and really going back to the conversation earlier about community, when you actually go to the area and meet the volunteers running the area, that's when you understand what it's all about. And I, I had numerous conversations with folks up in, in Maine and Vermont and, and also northern New Hampshire, where when you meet them, then you understand really what makes that area tick. So, you know, you've built pages and profiles for pretty much every ski area of note in New England, lost or active. Have you considered expanding outside the region? Do you have any interest in New York or the Mid-Atlantic or out West? I thought about that a few years ago in terms of um, trying to expand to maybe even the whole country. Um, and I thought about it good and hard, but then I decided 
rather than do that, I'd rather just redouble my efforts and try to build much more robust history pages. And you'll find that throughout the site, there's a lot of inconsistency where some areas are going to have really in-depth history for a few decades, and it's really spotty uh, on there. And then other ones where I just really haven't done much of anything. So rather than expand and stretch myself even more thin, I decided to really try to do a good job with this. So right now, that's a long-term process for me at the moment is just try to build a robust history for every ski area on the site. And that'll probably take me two or three lifetimes. And, and, you know, to your point, Jeremy, it is, some of these stories get really complex. I, I can't think of any New England ski area that's still operating under its original owner, original ownership group. I mean, maybe Eagle Brook would be an example of that. But when I, when I interview someone like the, like John Hunt at Whaleback, that's a ski area that has opened and closed many times and gone bankrupt. And then Tenny is the same thing. And, and there's a lot of these stories where it was just really hard to get it right. And in hindsight, it's really hard to put that story together. So kind of talk about when you have to put together some of these complex stories of ownership changes and bankruptcies. I mean, how hard is that to do for an area like Tenny or Whaleback, or maybe you can think of a better example where it's not as simple as Killington where, you know, it opened in 1950, whatever, and it's been open ever since. It is tough, especially because there are many instances where what's published in the press is not correct either. And then mm. also sometimes, you know, the contemporary accounts might not be correct. And then you start actually digging into the legal documents and realize, whoa, that was a different story. Um, <laughs> so it can be difficult to put it together. And there's some that I haven't quite pieced together. And there's others that I'm looking forward to jumping into and trying to really delineate it. Uh, Whaleback is certainly an interesting one. And um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a few others. By the way, another one um, that's been under the same ownership pretty much through and through would be Pat's Peak, by the way, where it's been the Oh, really? Oh, that's right. Yeah. So that, that's, that's a right. great one. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's very interesting to look at some of these complex ones. Um, and that's really part of the goal of the site is to get the history right. Um, really, because sometimes people have been shortchanged with some of the histories and and it's nice to get the right story out there so they get the, the proper credit for what they've contributed to the business. What have been the most challenging ski areas to get right, either because there were a lot of distortions out there or because maybe it was in a really remote area and there wasn't as much of that local press focus on it? What are some of the ones that you had a harder time building up and verifying? Berkshire East. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. No kidding. So um, I knew uh, Arthur Parker, the founder, uh, before he passed. And I had to rely, you know, and I can understand now because I've been out for, you know, 15 years where after a while, the years start to blur together and you don't remember exactly what happened. And for this, I'm trying to find out exactly what, what happened when. And I found that, you know, the, the long um, established founding date was incorrect. Um, and then some of the different timelines were incorrect. And then some of the um, spins on the ownership were uh, prior ownership were incorrect too. So that one's taken a while and there's still some fuzziness from the original ownership, uh, original inclination from the the fifties where I haven't quite figured it out. You know, the story was that it opened for one day, then there was rain and it wiped it out and then someone stole the rope that may have happened. <laughs> but now I found that it at least operated for two seasons in the fifties, which, you know, that, that was never known before. And, and this local press still run off with the original story. So, um, but you know, when you find the actual other archive, you know, articles from the time, that's when you piece it together and you look at the legal papers and it's like, wow, that's amazing. So, uh, Berkshire East, I'd say is for me, the, the one where I'm most embarrassed about how little I knew when I was there. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, 
it's an interesting area that that whole bit about the original Thunder Mountain. I mean, what, can you tell us just a little bit about that and and how the Berkshire East we know today came to be? Yeah. So Arthur Parker was, um, you know, he's living in Connecticut and he would come up and ski at Chickley Alp, which is a, a lost ski area just down the street from Berkshire East that went out of business in uh, 79, I believe it was. And uh, he was looking at the mountain uh, nearby uh, the train station, which is Mount Institute. And he thought, you know, boy, that'd be a great place for a ski area. And I think right around the time he was also staying at what was called the Plantation House, which um, I think is a private residence now, but for a while uh, was sort of an inn and um, decided to build what was initially a private club. And it started with a rope toe. It's located um, near the lower Mohawk Trail at today's Berkshire East. You can see this, uh, what, a, what looks like a garage kind of kitty corner from the mountain coaster and the triple chairlift over there. That's the original Thunder Mountain Lodge. And it went right up to where lower Mohawk sort of hits Big Chief. And that's that's the original area. He had plans to expand it a little bit further up the second year. That didn't work out um, because of the weather. Um, and then, but he, he stuck with it and it was idle for quite a few years. And then he came back, um, put together a new lease deal with it in this 1960 and then uh, was better capitalized and put in a chairlift and a T-bar for the 1961-62 season. At the time, it was tied for being the first chairlift surf ski area in Massachusetts. And this was also a time before, you know, the interstates were going all the way up into the whites and into the greens. So at the time, that was a big deal to have a, a, a thousand vertical foot or so a chairlift surf ski area in New England. So it, it was a big hit. And then, you know, the interstates were completed and then people started bypassing Berkshire's. There were some financial issues and a, some more bad winters after the sixties. Um, and, you know, of course that's when Roy enters the story, but um, so Berkshire's has had a very interesting pass over the years. Um, and there were a lot of failed expansion attempts uh, over the years as well um, that, you know, you can still see bits and pieces of them even today. So for anyone listening, there are 175 more stories like that on NewEnglandSkiHistory.com. So Jeremy, you've done a really good job of documenting the history, but there are some, obviously there's this maintenance component of this as well, where a ski area like Sugarbush gets a new general manager and you have to update that. So talk a little bit about that. And then there's a component of the site, New England Ski Industry News. So Talk a little bit about how you keep the profiles updated and then what you use the news section of the site for and what you focus on there. So the database itself is, or the website itself is database driven. Um, and that really makes it a lot easier to update um, a lot of the, the stuff you see lower in the profiles, whether it's the ticket prices, the lift database, um, the seasons, all that. So from that perspective, it's, it's fairly straightforward to update. I can do it in bulk, you know, once or twice a year as things change. Um, but every so often I do fall behind as things happen. Other times, if there's a big development, I'll try to go in and update the profile as things go. But uh, probably about, I guess this would be about 2014, I was thinking about, you know, what is going to be the next thing that goes in the history? And that's when I started thinking, well, that's today's news. That's pretty obvious. So that's when I had the idea to start the, the New England Ski Industry news site. And I can't take all the credit for that. There are other people who, you know, remain nameless who also – uh, contribute to it, but it's really trying to get today's um, information correct and then knowing that eventually it'll be tomorrow's history. And you can see it's integrated into the profiles where you can see some of the news stories linked down below and you can look at something that happened five years ago. And then as events unfold, uh, like 
I think of a few good examples would be um, some of the controversial dealings that happen at J peak. And then that uh, saddleback where you can actually go back at these news, news archives. There's no paywall. You don't have to go search and find all these broken links. It's all in one place. So that was sort of the intent of the New England ski industry news section. And you do some really nice original content there. And it, to your point, I'm not sure if this is you or the other contributors to the site, but Pretty regularly throughout the off season, there are lift construction updates with some really nice photos, which I link to all the time from my own news updates. And then every once in a while, you'll do neat little updates with some original reporting around kind of some of these ski areas on the edge, like Granite Peak or uh, Granite Gorge, sorry, Tenny, which are attempting comebacks this year. And I, I stopped by Granite Gorge just the other day to take a look around and they had blown a little bit of snow, but it was pouring rain. So just talk about those stories and creating them and why you decided to do original reporting around things like lifts and resort openings. I'll probably always be interested in lifts just from my time in the business, <laughs> especially just looking at them thinking, boy, that'd be a great lift for Berkshire East. Um, <laughs> but I spend a lot of time in the mountains, uh, trail running, doing trail maintenance, like that, things like that. So I'm on these mountains all the time, especially like on the side of Waterville, where I do a lot of trail maintenance for the, the Forest Service on a volunteer basis. And then I just like going around New England and hiking and, and running. So I just happen to be gravitated towards the uh, <laughs> ski areas. And then, uh, or if we're just driving somewhere, my wife will know where I'm looking. She's like, all right, we can do that. And we'll take off down the side road and go check out you know, Granite <laughs> Gorge where we're supposed to go somewhere else. And I always have my camera with me. And I kind of look at it from a perspective of, what would I like to know if I were just, you know, looking around, um, you know, how is that lift project going? And you don't always see too much on the ski area websites or Facebook profiles or Instagram uh, pages. So uh, sometimes I just proactively go out and take a look and see how it's going and then post the photos up on the site. So you also recently created a Substack newsletter, which is, as far as I can tell, it's a tease for the article that you just published on New England Ski Industry News. So just talk about that Substack and why you created it and how folks can sign up for that. Because I do like this notion of having it pushed to my inbox. So I don't necessarily always have to go and see if there's new content up there. So that works really well for me. But talk about why you created it and, and how folks can access it. Uh, I actually was somewhat inspired by you because uh, I hadn't really heard of Substack before uh, you started posting on there. And for years, I've been thinking it'd be great to have an email list, but I just didn't want to sign up with some sort of service where next thing you know, you find all the email addresses have been uh, misused or, or you know, they're getting blasted with spam. And Substack seemed like a very good source for that. For a long time, I had Facebook profiles on there too. But then with, uh, you know, the algorithms, it got really difficult. Uh, at one point, I had 10,000 plus followers on the New England Ski History Facebook page. And originally, when I was posting there, you would get reached to almost every follower. But by, towards the end, when I decided to, to shut it down, I was realizing I was getting a ridiculously small reach. And they're always saying, oh, pay money if you want to get out to the folks. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, I just want them to come to the website. And I looked at the analytics and realized that a lot of people were just kind of scrolling through or just reading the article rather than going to the website and going in depth. So Substack was a great option to, uh, in my opinion, allow folks who want to be notified of these updates to be notified. And then I think also with, with the COVID shutdowns, it worked out pretty well, too, because, you know, when people were locked up in their homes, I, I felt this obligation to try to keep content going so you could think about something else. And I don't know if I had the Substack page going yet, but I was inspired by what Peter's done with LiftBlog to try to do something on a fixed day every week. 
And so that's when I said, all right, every Tuesday now there's going to be an update on NewEnglandSkiHistory.com, hell or high water. So I have a few built up just ready to go in case I miss a week uh, in terms of being able to pull something together. But Substack really uh, was a great option to be able to do that. And I, I respect how they, you know, they you know, welcome free speech and they don't try to charge you money just to get your message out. What do you call the Substack newsletter? It's just uh, SkiNewEngland.net, I believe, because that's sort of the overarching database front end, if you will, for mm-hmm. the, the news site, the history site. And also there's this other one called uh, New England Ski Conditions, which didn't quite take off. I have a hiking trail conditions site that I started um, I'm looking at the year here, 13 years ago. Um, and the ski conditions one I only started a few years ago. I, I think I missed the you know, the entry point there because social media really taken off, but so that's a front end for that as well. And it's uh, the ski condition site is a user-based thing run by a database. And it's kind of similar to the news concept where today's ski conditions will be tomorrow's history. And you can be able to pull all this stuff together and look at it years from now and, and really look at things differently at that point. Well, I will, for anyone listening, I will include a link to the Substack newsletter so you can sign up to that on the article that accompanies this podcast on stormskiing.com, as well as obviously links to New England Ski History and all the other sites we're talking about here. So I want to talk about lost ski areas here, Jeremy. As you mentioned, you have 175 or so profiles of ski areas. By my count, there's between 85 and 90 active ski areas in New England. It kind of depends on on what you're counting and, and what happens in any given year. But so that means you have uh, approximately, let's say, 85 lost ski area profiles. If you go to Jeremy Davis's site, you'll see that there's around 200 lost ski areas in Massachusetts alone, right? So obviously, you, you made the decision not to cover every ski area. What criteria did you use, or do you have criteria, or kind of how did you go about deciding, okay, this is a ski area that I'm going to cover, and then maybe this little rope toe that was open for two months in you know, 1961 in Massachusetts, maybe I don't need a whole profile about that. Well, I definitely did not want to replicate what Jeremy's doing. I mean, what Jeremy did is just fantastic. And then the books, not only the website, but the books are, are great, especially the newer ones where he's gone really in depth. So I didn't think there was a need to, to do it all again. Um, but on the other hand, being a database driven site, especially if you look at the Lyft database, if you look at, for instance, Berkshire East or Catamount are great examples where you can follow a current lift to its uh, ancestors, if you will, and click through. And as a result of that, you needed to be able to have the lot, some of the lost ski areas on the site and in the database. So you could kind of follow that through. So some of the criteria I look at would be pretty much any area with a chairlift. I'll, I'll try to do a write up on the lost areas that had chairlifts. Um, anything that's recently closed. You know, unfortunately, there are a few where when I created the profiles, they were open and now they're closed. And then also there might just be a few where it's just, of interest to me for whatever reason. Um, you know, like an example is this, like this rope toe up by Mount Katahdin in Maine, where there was a canceled ski area. And as I was researching that, I stumbled upon this small rope toe area. So I said, ah, might as well, while I'm at it. Um, <laughs> so that's generally the criteria. It's really just what I feel like doing. Of those profiles you've created, what do you think has been the biggest lost ski area as far as impact on New England skiing? Like what ski area has gone under that would really be additive or valuable if it would have found a way to stuck around? I could pretend to think about that one, but I don't need to. It's Mount Tom. <laughs> I, I think okay. Mount Tom in Holyoke, Massachusetts was a, a horrible loss. It was good for Berkshire East business, but mm-hmm. to basically leave that whole part of the Pioneer Valley without uh, you know, a, a really good ski area um, was just a darn shame. And it was a very popular ski area too. 
um, had they would do hundreds of thousands of skier visits. They had a summer business. You know, it's unfortunate that it closed. I believe it closed in 98. Um, but beyond that, I would say that, frankly, any small ski area that closes is a loss too. And, you know, it's too bad that so many have closed because I think about, in my case, now, mind you, I was skiing at a mid-sized ski area, but if I had not had that ski area right across from my elementary school, I would have never skied. And so if you think about all these places now throughout New England where there is no local skiing, that means you have generations of kids who will maybe never ski. Whereas if you have these small ski areas, like what we have today up in Lincoln, New Hampshire, you know, the Kankamaga ski area, where you get kids out on the slope very inexpensively and they develop, you know, this, uh, this lifelong passion for the sport. So any small ski area that's closed, I think is a loss, but Mount Tom would be the, probably the worst one I would say. Yeah. Kank's a great example because it's obviously right in the shadow of Loon Mountain, but a lift ticket at Loon Mountain is, is what, $125 this year. And it's unlikely you'll go try skiing for that price. So that creates a really nice little ecosystem where you try it there and then maybe you can get some kind of motivation or deal to go try it at Loon. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And it's also a good opportunity too to develop future skiery employees because if you, like me, if you get someone hooked at a young age, they're going to want to work there in high school and then maybe they'll stick with it. Whereas, you know, if you just try to pull someone off the street, you're not going to get the same quality of things. So that's where a lot of skiers, if they can try to develop their talent from the school programs, it, it, you, if you look at some small to mid-sized skiers, you're going to find the long-term employees learn to ski there. So it's another example of really the benefit of having these local ski areas. So tell us a little bit more about Mount Tom, Jeremy. I think that's a ski area that's really missed. And it was kind of funny. I was skiing at Butternut last year and this woman on the lift, she's like, hey, have you ever been up to Mount Tom? I'm like, where have you been? <laughs> so she she didn't get the memo, but but that was, you're right. It was It's, it's a ski area that meant a lot to a lot of people. What happened there? Ah, that's, that's a good question. I don't know if anyone has the definitive answer, but it was the, 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 Operation we know was started in uh, right around 1960. There are a few other, you know, relative um, developments on other parts of the mountain, uh, but you know, the main development I believe is about 1960, and it grew very quickly. And you know, the area was also I think demographically a little bit different too. You might have had more families and stuff. Uh, it grew very quickly with the chairlifts, um, and then they developed the summer business. They also had there was actually an amusement park nearby that was not owned by the same folks, but I mean, it was literally like the same entrance called Mountain Park. Um, wow. So that helped with the summer business too, where you could basically tie the two together. And it grew. It had good snowmaking capabilities. Um, it was largely, uh, I understand, an intermediate mountain. I never actually skied there, but I've hiked it. Um, and, you know, the patriarch, I guess you might say, passed away. And they kept going for a while. But eventually it just petered out. And I believe they were going to focus on the quarry operation. So they shut down the ski area. And unfortunately the way that it was split up means it'll probably never come back because there's a lot of different ownership interests now and some conservation property. And then, you know, this, this place called Berkshire East bought out all the equipment. So, <laughs> um, you know, the closest we have now is when you're at Berkshire East, when you ride that little chair that was previously at Mount Tom and, um, you know, we have a lot of other stuff at Berkshire's, I believe that that's still from Mount Tom, but it, it's sad that it's gone though, because it would have just been great for future generations. And also the, you know, the students of the five colleges in that area, you know, they went there a lot too. And, you know, now some of them come to Berkshire's, but it's a much longer drive whereas you, before you just go right across the river. So, so that was a rough period for Western Massachusetts, just four years later. Well, in, in 2002, 
Brody shut down and actually Jiminy Peak had purchased that ski area, gave it a go for a couple of years and then closed it down. And I did host Brian Fairbank on this podcast a couple of years back. And we talked about this and and his explanation was that there just wasn't A, the, the, the skier volume and B, the water. So what's your take on Brody and losing Brody? I was fortunate enough to ski there when I was a kid. Um, skied there, I think right around 95, 94, something like that. So it was already kind of on its downslide. Um, but it was a great area. And I think it would actually be a very successful area today if it had been properly capitalized because it, it was a largely intermediate area and intermediate terrain is just, it's great for business. Look at Okimo. Um, mm-hmm, right. But for a long time, it was a leader in the industry. Um, they actually were challenging Killington for first to open for quite a few years. They had some October openings at Brody. Mind you, they're opening on, you know, like the small either T-bar or chairlift slope. But they'd expand to the summit relatively quickly. Um, you know, they also had a really large night skiing operation. Of course, St. Patrick's Day was a huge thing there, especially if you're part <laughs> right. Irish like me. Big deal. And you always had the, the Kennedys. Uh, who knows what they were doing around there, but partying it up. Um, right. But unfortunately, in the 80s, um, you know, while they're in this growth curve, they also the family also had some other uh, attempts at businesses. They were trying to build a power plant down the street. I think for a little while, they're hoping the power plant was going to help, you know, power the snowmaking. And then they ran into some, they ran into an issue with the power plant, which was a major investment. And then they also ran into some issues with uh, local zoning is quite an interesting story on, on the website about that. It almost seemed like a, a script from the old show, Newhart, uh, with all the local <laughs> politics. And unfortunately during the eighties, you know, while they were just tripped up and they couldn't uh, expand, um, you know, the rest of the industry sort of passed them by, you know, Jiminy Peak started growing. And then, you know, a few years later, Jiminy Peak had a fixed rip quad and they had all this development and Brody was still basically the same ski area it was 10 years earlier. And, you know, I think at that point that, you know, the steam kind of ran out of it and then uh, Jim Kelly was looking to retire. Um, so, you know, it's a shame that it's gone. I think in some parallel universe, that would be a hugely successful area today had they been able to keep the, you know, the, the uh, momentum they had going in the 70s. I mentioned earlier, Massachusetts has around, according to Jeremy Davis's count, over 200 lost ski areas, but we're down to about a dozen. The most recent loss was Ski Blandford, and the owner of Butternut purchased both Blandford and Otis Ridge and kept them going. And I actually skied Otis Ridge last year, and that was a really fun little backwoods place. It, it, it kind of feels like you're, it doesn't feel like Massachusetts at all. It's just, it's, it's a cool little environment. They were not able to save Blandford, though. Just talk about losing Blandford and what that means that we're down to, by my count, about a dozen ski areas, active ski areas in the state of Massachusetts. Yeah, we have about a dozen in Massachusetts, but they're also you know pretty consolidated in a certain area of Berkshire County. For instance, you know, Berkshire East is the only ski area in Franklin County. In the case of Blandford, um, you know, they have Otis Ridge nearby, but then other than that, you have this big stretch without skiing uh, east of there in the state. Um, Blanford, I intend to spend some more time researching that one because, it, you know, it had humble beginnings with a Springfield Ski Club and they had looked to build it elsewhere too. They, I think at one point they wanted to build uh, the ski area on Mount Toby, which is uh, north of Amherst, uh, you know, south of Deerfield, pretty close to Eagle Brook, actually, as you think about it from air. Uh, but they chose Blanford and, you know, I think it was kind of on pastures for a little while, but then for a while there, it was growing very quickly and they kept putting in chairlift after chairlift. And then it just sort of petered out. And 
You know, they were on life support for quite a few years. They were trying all sorts of different things, you know, with night skiing deals. And then it, the club just couldn't make it work. And it's tough when you have clubs and nonprofits, you know, if you just don't have that catalyst, it, it you know, it dies in the vine. Uh, I was really hoping that, you know, the, uh, the ownership of butternut was going to keep it going. And when they, they finally got it going, because I know the infrastructure was in really rough shape, but when they got it going, I, I hoped it was going to stay operational, but you know, unfortunately with the COVID shutdown, that was it for Blanford somewhere. I hope it comes back. Um, I don't really think it's someplace that's you know, going to turn into a, you know, a housing development instead, you know, if you've ever been out there, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, even though it's in Massachusetts, but I just, I, I don't know if or when it's going to come back, but I sure hope it does. Yeah, our butternut representative confirmed to me, I think about two years ago now, that it was for sale and they would entertain offers for it. So this is not a Brody situation where they're putting this restriction on the deed. I think they're just saying we need to focus on butternut, which they have invested a ton into, um, and Otis Ridge to a lesser extent to try to keep these two areas going. At least that's my point of view. I don't know if you have any more information than that. I don't think I have any more information than that other than I drove by there, I think, earlier this year. And the infrastructure is all there. And it seems like, you know, they're, they're keeping the area secure, which is important. If you've ever been to a lost ski area that, um, you know, has had vandalism, it, it's a sad sight to see. Um, but it seems like they kept the assets secure. I think Otis Ridge probably has a, a better location. And, you know, it's also, I would say, probably less expensive to operate. And as you mentioned, it's a it's a great little area. Um, but I hope something happens with Blanford. Those are hall chairlifts. So, you know, they, those things could run forever. <laughs> <laughs> something that Sean Sutner, a uh, local ski columnist there in Massachusetts, brought to my attention last year on the podcast was that Otis Ridge actually has the highest base area in Massachusetts. And I had no idea, but they really are in this little snow pocket there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember, I think I read that in his column as well. And it, it was interesting uh, tidbit. And I, I haven't, you know, looked around at that. I actually have a database of those, so I should have known that. And it's actually interesting because Berkshire East has a relatively low base elevation. Um, and, and man, that makes all the difference in early season snowmaking some years. But it really does, it's yeah. a great area. And I, I think that if you're ever – well, you've been there. But if you're ever in the area, just if you have an hour or two, grab a ticket. Go for, go skiing there, even if it's night skiing. It's awesome. It's just it's the way skiing used to be. Yeah, and I, and I think they still do – I think it's $25 lift tickets in, during the week. I'll check that out for anyone listening. I'll put that in the article. But um, what about – let's talk about – move down to Connecticut here, Jeremy. What do you make of Woodbury? That was Connecticut's fifth public ski area. Went out of business several years ago. It had this really eclectic owner, uh, local amusement park manager, bought it last year. And I, I thought he would save it. But as you pointed out on your site, he once again sold it, and, and I think it – seems like it's destined to become, you know, used for something else. But what do you make a ski of Woodbury? Do you have any hope for that ski area? I think Woodbury uh, was a passion project. You know, it's an example of if you have the right owner who puts everything into it, you're going to keep it operating. And I know his right-hand man also really kept that place going even after uh, Rod passed. Um, and then actually, I think I was the one who ended up breaking the story that it was even sold to the amusement park. And I stumbled into that by accident one night. And next thing you know, it was picked up by the local paper. I think I was just mm -hmm. looking through registry of deeds things, just wondering what was going on. I believe they split the asset up. If you've, I've actually never been there, but I feel like I've been there from Google Earth at this point where they have yeah. a tubing operation on one side of the road, then the skier in the other side of the road. And I believe the, um, you know, they had some lawsuits. There were definitely a lot of legal issues um, with the prior ownership group. So I think the amusement park owner um, split, you know, 
basically I uh, was able to get the liens off the property and then split the ski area off separately from the tubing area. I, I don't know the current status. I think there was intent of at least trying to operate the tubing area, but um, you know, when you have a ski area that's been closed that long and also had some antiquated infrastructure every year that passes is, is not a good sign. All right. So let's talk about, you know, some lost scares are lost and they'll be lost forever. And most of them don't come back, but some of them do. And the headliner in recent times has been Saddleback, which came back online two years ago. And, and I thought they used a really interesting model. And this was sort of the same model that Busquet used to rebuild their entire infrastructure, which was basically an investment group that's willing to take losses for a few years, makes that upfront investment in infrastructure to modernize the ski area and then hopes to build up an asset they can sell. These are experiments. I don't know if they'll work or not, but what's your take on Saddleback? What do you make of this ski area two years into the comeback? I don't know if uh, flipping skiers will ever really be a profitable enterprise. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going off of 50 plus uh, years of historic research. It doesn't always work out. But on the other hand, though, if you have a dedicated group that can, you know, is well capitalized and, and really can put an area together, that's a good sign. And um, the work that's done, been done at Bosque is it's amazing to see how quickly that advanced. Saddleback, uh, I finally got up there. I think it was last season and the high speed quad. What a great investment that was. Um, I'd skied there, I yeah. think, just before they closed. And, you know, they're really limping by having that, that double chair, which was a Frankenlift for sure. A few different manufacturers <laughs> on it. Um, I was surprised by the Sandy quad, though. I, I, I've never quite understood why they kept that lift line uh, with a new quad. But, uh, I, I've said catch 22 a few times, I think already in this interview, but I think it's a catch 22 for me at Saddleback because, you know, I, I suspect they're going to have to expand um, to really get to where they want to be. But on the other hand, though, if you expand too much, they're going to lose the charm because that place just has a special vibe. And if you built it out to be the next Sunday River, for instance, it would not be Saddleback anymore. So I hope they can really, you know, thread that fine line and, and be able to expand it a little bit, but still keep that special vibe that really only Saddleback has. It's just a great place. If you've never been up there, it, it's such a special feel. It's an awesome ski area and the expert terrain on the upper mountain is fantastic. Yeah. I, I think they've been making some really good moves. It, I, my concern is I don't know if there's room business-wise for three large ski areas in Maine and, and, you know, with Boyne buying Pleasant Mountain, that place is basically going to have a fire hose of cash pointed at it as well. So who knows? We'll see. I hope it makes it. I think it has great terrain and that new high speed lift is, is a beauty. That thing is gorgeous. Um, so next, next store in New Hampshire, Jeremy, we have two ski areas I mentioned earlier attempting comebacks this year, Tenny, which, and Granite Gorge, both of which, gosh, they've been in and out of business for decades. No one really seems to be able to get it right at either one. What do you think about Tenny and Granite Gorge? Do you think these ski areas are going to make it back open? Granite Gorge, as you mentioned, they're making snow, so I think they're just about there. Um, I've, I've stopped by there a few times this year, and they're they're going just full bore. So I think they'll make a go of it. It is a neat little area. I skied there under the previous incarnation before the uh, prior under died. Um, and when it was all open, it was great. And you know, they have some bottlenecks. There really isn't much room for parking um, or a base area, but you know, it's it's great to have that so close to Keene. So I think that's I, I'd be shocked if it doesn't open this season. And Tenny, um, you know, Michael's been really focused on their area, and there's been a lot of ups and downs. Um, you know, they opened on a limited basis for a few years there, but. Um, they're really focusing on it now. I go running up there quite often, so it's neat to see the progress. And for a while, you know, especially after the COVID shutdown, it was looking like it was looking, um, 
you know, right around the 2010 or so era where it was just growing in and falling apart. But um, there's been a lot of progress in the past few months. Uh, I don't know, you know, what the product will be on the snow this year because they're so far behind, you know, the eight ball in terms of trying to do all this major work. But if they can even, you know, just have a good snow winter, I think they're going to have a lot of good skiing this year on natural snow. And it looks like they'll have some snowmaking, but I think there's a more of a long-term vision there. And, you know, there's always room for additional intermediate skiing, you know, in this general White Mountain vicinity, you know, especially on the weekends. And also, I think there has been a void in the Plymouth area for having a local ski area, uh, you know, with Tenney kind of coming and going. I know Waterville has been trying to fill the void and bringing local school kids programs in, you know, into effect with some of their limited night skiing. But, you know, if Tenney can really get on a stable footing, I think that'll be great for the region. So moving up the state to the, not quite the top of New Hampshire, but pretty far north, the old wilderness ski area, Les Otten of formerly the American Skiing Company has this vision to rebuild it as the Balsams. And I, I guess it was probably called the Balsams Wilderness before, but it, it the way this plan is scoped out, it's a really impressive plan. They It would be the largest ski area in the east. There is a nice snow pocket up there. What's your take on the Balsams, Jeremy? Do you think that this project has any chance of happening? I think it's a long shot, but I do think there is a chance. Uh, I don't know if it's going to end up looking like, you know, the plans look today. Um, (laughs) But I'll tell you, uh, I've done some uh, bushwhacking, which is hiking off trail in the winter up there. And they do get snow in that area. It's amazing. Um, You know, they do have some challenges with the wind farm on top. I think they're trying to figure out how to have the most vertical as possible up there, you know, while still having, you know, the offset from the turbines. But, um, you know, the, the feel up there has changed since the wind farm went in. It is a long drive. I, I never got to ski up there. I wish I had. Um, it's ironic because those two chairlifts there really don't have many hours on. Those are both Partech triples. Uh, I hope it works out. You know, there, there is a chance it could work as a destination resort, but, you know, there a lot of things got to line up for it to work. But I hope it works out because, you know, the more skiing in New Hampshire we can get, the better. What do you think the biggest obstacle is? Is it financing? Because obviously this would be a very expensive project. Is it regulation? Because it is just very hard to build anything in New England, you know, let alone a ski area. Is it is it just getting local? Like, what, what do you think is keeping this project from happening? Because I, I don't personally buy the argument of you have to drive by all these other ski areas to get there because as JP will show you or Smuggler's Notch or Stowe, people will drive far for quality. So this could work. But but in, from your point of view, what would it take to make the balsams happen? And what is the biggest obstacle right now? It is a drive. <laughs> if you've ever been that far up, <laughs> or, you know, the Colebrook area it is quite a drive. For, for JP, I would say it's, uh, if you're coming from the south, it, you know, it's a relatively easy drive out off of 91. But it's a commitment to get up there. But on the other hand, though, it also gives it a special feel. When you're in Dixville Notch, it is a neat place. It's not one of these more commercialized, if you will, I guess, notches <laughs> like Franconia Notch where there's an interstate going through it. It's this rickety little road going through Dixville Notch. Um, I think financing is absolutely going to be uh, a concern. The ski area as it was was really a mid-sized ski area. I don't think it ever made money. It was just you know, really a hobby uh, pro- or a passion project, I guess, of the you know now deceased owner. Um, so I think, I don't think you'd be able to get people to go up there and make a profitable skier, a profitable operation as a destination resort with the current footprint. But if they can get, um, something unique up there and something of size to justify, you know, folks going away for multiple days, then they could make a go of it. And, you know, obviously you're going to be starting pretty much from scratch in terms of infrastructure. You need a lot of snowmaking to be able to build that 
um, you know, to get a, a product that people expect and also the lift, lift infrastructure and then, you know, the on the ground um, lodge and, and hotel um, infrastructure would also be a challenge, but I think it could work out, but it's going to take a lot of money. And, um, you know, even then I think you might have to do it gradually too. I don't think you can do it all at once. And so therefore, like we've been talking with a few of these other areas, you'd have to have the ability to sustain some years with losses while you build up the business. But I hope it works out. So we've seen, Jeremy, that lost ski areas can come back from the dead. And sometimes they do it quite effectively to the point that most skiers don't even realize that a lot of these skiers were once lost. The ones I'm thinking of here, Crotchet in New Hampshire was a lost skier for several years before Peak Resorts rebuilt it. Powder Ridge in Connecticut. Of course, Magic Mountain was lost for about half of the 1990s. What does it take to successfully revitalize a ski area? Because obviously there was something that wasn't working the first time. And it it's a matter of formula, right? Like what what is your market? How do you how do you figure it out? So what what did these scares do right? And I'm sure there's a different answer for each of them that some of these other folks attempting comebacks could learn from. Well, you definitely need long term commitment. You need passion, and you need to be able to sustain multiple bad seasons because if your model can only sustain one, you're going to have two or three or four. Um, so you have to be able to sustain that. Uh, Crotchet and Powder Ridge are really, I think two separate sides of the spectrum. Crotchet was basically a, a brand new ski area when Peak Resorts reopened it in the early 2000s. They had been poking around a few other areas operating and not operating um, before they settled on Crotchet. But, you know, that's mo- other, you know, obviously some of the lifts were refurbished technically, but it was pretty much a new ski area. So, um, you know, once they had it up and going, they really didn't take much more investment, I don't believe, from a capital perspective. In Powder Ridge, it's mostly the uh, existing infrastructure. If you go there, you know, there's still some stuff that's a little bit rough around the edges, but you can tell that they've been trying to fix things up as they go. I mean, that's an example of a ski area where the asset was not protected, you know, during its closure. And it was just, oh, some of the photos from the closure were devastating. But in both cases, though, it seems like the owners, you know, have had a more of a long-term vision rather than just try to get it open and hope for the best. You know, they really seem to have a vision. So it's good to see those back. <laughs> what do you make of, we discussed this one a little bit earlier, Big Squaw, Big, which is on Big Moose Mountain. And the current owner, James Confalone, doesn't want to change the name. He's trying to sell the ski area. The lower mountain is still run by a group of volunteers. The upper mountain has been out of commission since the summit chairlift failed. In 2004, we thought a developer was going to buy it from Campfalone that fell through. What are your what are your thoughts on on Big Squaw, Big Moose, whatever you want to call it? Do you have any optimism that that could ever live up to its potential and become that new big main ski area that it could be? I guess like Prince will have to call it the ski area formerly known as Big Squaw. <laughs> right. um, I, I think the current model that the volunteers have put together, you know, is probably the most viable one, you know, that's realistic at the moment. Um, you know, the, the triple chair serves some nice intermediate terrain. It's kind of neat when you ski. I don't know if you've been up there, but when you ski um, through the old upper base area, it's like you're skiing through a ghost town, then you come back to their operation. Oh, wow. And I think they've been doing some snow cat rides to the upper mountain. I'm not quite sure. Uh, I've only skied it once. So I've hiked up there in the off season as well. And it's, it's a beautiful area, the Moosehead Lake area, but it's a drive. And, you know, you mentioned that you have Saddleback and Sugarloaf, which are shorter drives, um, much closer to the population mm-hmm. centers. Uh, it's quite a drive. Big Squaws never made it. Uh, I mean, that was, if, if I had, I'll, I'll 
I'll uh, defer to the site. Um, you know, I may have <laughs> backwards, but I believe it was given to the state and the state couldn't even make a go of it uh, right. as a full size ski area. So when you're that far off, it, you know, there, there might be a way to, you know, without having a large development, maybe be able to get some sort of a modest chairlift to the top and hope for the best with natural snow and not have too much overhead. But, you know, at least it's operating right now in the lower mountain. And it's a good way to get the local kids out there and, and even, you know, just local families um, to be able to continue to ski and keep the sport alive. Because if it goes too long, you're just going to, you know, have a generation or two who don't ski. And then that is completely it. So hopefully it works out. But I don't know if the, the grand vision was particularly realistic as, you know, presented. Yeah, you were talking about a, a high-speed six-pack to the summit. And that full vertical, I believe, is 1,700 vertical feet if you can get that thing going. I think that this is a really good example of a way to keep a ski area going in a minimalist way with hopes that that sort of angel investor will come along. I know when they decided to crack Saddleback back open, they had a lot of work to do, but but the Friends of the Mountain – who have a really active Facebook group and maintain that lower part of that ski area have done a good job. I mean, do you think that there's other ski areas, lost ski areas that could have worked if you would have had that sort of group to keep things going in just a minimalist way? And even if it is just that lower mountain chairlift. In a minimalist way. Yeah. I, I think pretty much any ski area, if you had the right model, you could keep it operating unless it's, you know, some extreme one I can't think of, but, you know, even a Maple Valley in, in Southern Vermont, you know, if they could have somehow kept it going as a modest operation, maybe it could have worked. Um, but you, you just, I think part of it is not having debt. And again, having that person who has a drive um, and, you know, fortunately the, the ski area formerly known as big squad, the, the group there, they still have some people who have a drive to keep that place operating. And, you know, you also look at a Scutney in Vermont too, where, um, you know, it was a much larger ski area and it just wasn't viable, but, you know, the local volunteer group, they've been able to reopen it. And, um, you know, it's a nice operation now for, for what it is. You'll never be able to ride chairlift to the top again. Um, but it, it's a good model though. If you can at least keep some semblance of skiing in the area, uh, I think that's a good thing. Of the lost ski areas in New England, other than the ones that we've already discussed, do you think that there are any that have a chance of coming back? I saw recently that Snow Valley, right up there by Bromley and Stratton, was listed for sale. I, I think the chances are very small that you would see chairlift served skiing there. But, but do you think there are any ski areas in New England that could come back from the dead? Chairlift served ski areas, I, you know, obviously, uh, granted, uh, Gorge and Tenny. Mm -hmm. I think those are very high probability at this point that they'll be reopening. Um, there's a few others that I think, you know, maybe there's a Hail Mary chance, but I think there's some surface lift areas that could reopen. I really hope that Mount Prospect up in uh, Northern New Hampshire reopens. They sat out last season. Um, you know, and that, that's an example I think of where you have a few small areas up there and just not quite enough skiers or volunteers to keep them all uh, well populated. Um, I think that uh, there's a slight chance that maybe Monto, which is Swift Rot Water, um, which is, um, I guess, trying to think of what town that's near, but that's off of, you know, the extension, I guess, of the Kank uh, in mm -hmm. northern New Hampshire. That has a chance maybe of coming back as a rope tow area, I've heard. Fars Hill, I think, has a chance in Vermont. Um, you know, they've already purchased a T-bar. Uh, I don't know when they're going to put it in, but, you know, they've been doing some, some uh, various carnivals and stuff there over the years. So I think that has a chance of coming back. And then... There's also, if you call it a lost gear, I think there's a chance you might see some semblance of um, 
train serve skiing return to the cog railway. I don't know quite what that'll look like, but I I think that there's been some rumblings about that as they look to expand their business again. What about Plymouth or round top or whatever you want to call it in Vermont, which was a private ski club for a few years, sort of in the model of the hermitage club, but has been sitting out as far as I can tell, driving by, it's still in pretty good shape. Have you heard anything about that ski area and a chance that it could reopen? I have not heard anything about it. I drove by there recently and, you know, fortunately it hasn't been vandalized or anything. The lift is quite old. It's a Mueller with uh, SeaTac chairs hung on it. I got the ski there just before it closed and it, it's a neat midsize area, but it's um, sort of in a odd uh, demographic, I guess you could say, because you're surrounded by Okimo and Killington and then as it stands, it's not a big area comparison to those. And there isn't much of a local um, demographic to support it as a viable commercial area per se. But they do have some infrastructure, though, with uh, I believe they built a large snowmaking reservoir up top. But on the other hand, though, they also didn't really have much electric infrastructure on the mountain. I believe they're using diesel for some of the snowmaking. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, the base lodge is beautiful. It's really like a clubhouse. So I think that's an example. If you just get the right person who wants it as a hobby, then it could come back. But I don't know how else it will come back right now. All right. Let's focus on the living for a minute here. Lots of expansion plans around New England. And I always get excited when I go through your site and see some of these unfulfilled expansion plans that I've never heard of. And it's pretty amazing if you click around to see what people have dreamed up in past years. But this is not a complete list, but some of the expansion plans out there, Gunstock, Waterville Valley, Mount Sunapee, Sugarloaf, Sunday River. Which which of which expansion plans around New England are you most excited about right now, Jeremy? The currently proposed ones, well, I already mentioned that I'm excited about the Berkshire East one whenever that comes to fruition. I think the Western Reserve at Sunday River is very interesting. I went bushwhacking through that territory uh, last summer with a friend, and I mean, there's definitely out in the middle of nowhere there. Um, it would give you a different exposure, I believe. I haven't seen the plans, but it might give you a different exposure as compared to the current ski area. So just the unknown there, the Western Reserve, it's a great name, and I think that'd be interesting. And then I, I think also I'm, I'm very compelled with what they're doing at Waterville. Um, you know, I know some people complain about why did they put that slow triple on Green Peak? Well, that was because they wanted to get some terrain open in the short term. But in the long term, though, there's going to be, I think you've already discussed it on a previous podcast, there's going to most likely be a gondola up to the other side of that peak or some sort of a high-speed lift, and you'd be able to ski most of that terrain off of a brand-new lift. And it would tie it in with the downtown, which is really getting back to Tom Corcoran's original vision, where you'd be able to basically drive into Waterville, park your car, and not have to drive again for the rest of the weekend, not have to get on a shuttle bus or anything like that. And Waterville is just this a really special place where you have this village at the end of the road. So that one really excites me. I don't know when it'll happen, but it'd be a really neat expansion. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it would really give that village experience that New England largely is lacking. And, and hopefully when the Jordan 8 opens the Sunday River in a couple of weeks here, that will be the start of some Western Reserve expansion. It seems like of those ones I've mentioned, the, the one that is 100% going to happen, the chairlift is going in soon, is Sugarloaf, which I think will be a, a great expansion. After Sugarloaf, well, I guess give me your, your thoughts on Sugarloaf, if you don't mind. And then after that, which of the expansion plans do you think is most likely to happen? I think Sugarloaf excites me the most if they end up putting in uh, more parking near the, the new lift. Because <laughs> it, it's a little bit of a haul from some of the yeah. other parking lots. So that'd be great. <laughs> right. um, I haven't really looked at the terrain too much. I, I do remember for years wondering why there are no trails in that section of the trail map. Um, but I haven't walked the new lift line yet, but I hope to maybe next off season take a closer look. But um, yeah, it'll be great to have an expansion there. 
And then beyond that, uh, the next one, boy, I, I'm not sure offhand because, you know, as we know, things can change quickly. I think the, the easy layup will be that beginner area at Loom because that seems like that's pretty much a done deal that happen next year. That, mm-hmm. That'll certainly help also, like talking about complaining about parking, that will certainly help with the parking situation at Loom to be able to operate on a lift um, from the Lincoln side of the ski area. So I think that has a pretty good chance at this point of going in. One that I thought was really going to happen because they cut the trails for it was that third peak at Ragged. And while I was researching the J Peak sale to Pacific Group Resorts, I asked, hey, when are you going to put a lift up to serve that terrain expansion at Ragged? And they said, oh, we're not doing that. It doesn't make economic sense. What's your reaction to that? Uh, Well, first of all, it's not unexpected or unprecedented to have trails cut and then not opened. Uh, Like at Berkshire's, we, I guess it'd be the Royal, we, I, I technically dragged some brush, but we cut Wilderness <laughs> Peak uh, and then it, it stayed undeveloped for quite a few years before it was finally uh, excavated. And then it took another year because we had no snow to ski it. Um, so it took a few years before just looking at what are these trails and why are they not being skied? And then also Loon is another example where South Peak was cut and just sat for years in that case, because of some environmental issues. Um, in the case of Ragged, um, I think, you know, I, I don't know why they cut the trails per se, but um, not making economic sense, that makes sense to me um, because, you know, in the ski industry, you have the folly of build it and they will come, but that doesn't always work. And <laughs> I guess the question is, what would that terrain contribute to the ski area that it doesn't already have? It seems like it's kind of a similar pitch to, um, you know, the stuff off the six pack as is. So if they're able to really uh, dial in their existing operation right now, which you can tell they've been doing, trying to upgrade snowmaking and then putting the high speed quad on Spear Peak, um, you know, it makes sense really to just nail the current operation. And I mean, ragged's come leaps and bounds um, under this ownership group as compared to what it was, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So it seems like they're on a good trajectory and, um, you know, maybe someday they will open those trails or some version of those, but it makes sense that they don't make economic sense at this point. So digging into your archives, Jeremy, what are the unfulfilled expansion plans that maybe are on a shelf collecting dust and no one really is talking about them or intending to do them? But if you could play Sim Ski Area, the video game, which one of these would you build? Which one, which unfulfilled ski area expansion excites you the most in New England? I don't want to be limited to one, so I'll give you three. <laughs> <laughs> yes, let's do it. <laughs> I think one of them, uh, just emailing with Press Smith, uh, Killington's Parker Gore just sounded like a fantastic concept where he wanted to have this almost like a, a backcountry or wilderness type of feel where he had all these different, uh, you know, perspectives um, where the intent was you'd be able to ski it, not see any development. It was going to be a little bit more of a a natural uh, snow type of feel as opposed to, you know, large snowmaking and obviously um, some regulatory, well, some environmental things kept that from happening. So that one would have been really neat. Um, I think that in that same state, Bolton Valley, their original plan, Mm -hmm. that would have been awesome to be able to ski all the way down to the highway. Uh, and then have the trails on the opposite side of the valley as well. Uh, I have the map, I think, on the Ski History website where you can see the original mm-hmm. concept. I don't know how I found that thing, but I have a <laughs> actual physical copy of it. And that would have been, oh, wow. oh, it would have been a oh, that would have been an amazing ski area. I mean, Bolton Out Valley is great. Ironically, you can ski some of that stuff. I probably shouldn't say too much about it, but I do believe <laughs> some people are skiing some of those uh, original proposed areas to an extent. And then the other one I could think of in New Hampshire that is uh, actually I was hiking up in that area just a few weeks ago with my wife would be Black Cap at Cranmore. 
Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if they still have the rights, but uh, I think it used to be in, even in Booth Creek's shareholder statements where they had the ability to expand upward from Cranmore up to Black Cap, which is, uh, I think, like another 600 vertical feet. And it's like this bowl, which will kind of link you into um, where the Schneider Triple is now. Um, so that would have been really neat. It would have taken Cranmore to really be, I think, closer in size to, to Adatash. But I don't know if that'll ever happen. But it's just when you walk up there, it's especially the top of Black Cap, it's, it's uh, wide open or pretty close to wide open, ledgy. And um, you, you're looking down at Cranmore. It, it would be a neat expansion. I, I even have a photo actually from, I think, the 50s. They used to operate a shuttle from the top of Cranmore up to Black Cap so you can then ski back. Um, I'd love to find more about that, but that'll be for another day. Wow. Yeah. I'm getting chills hearing about all these, Jeremy. This is, this is the stuff I love looking into. All right. Let's, uh, let's finish up today by talking about passes and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but the season pass landscape has changed so quick in new England. And so thoroughly, if you go back even six years ago, there was no Epic pass in new England. There was no icon pass in existence. We didn't have the Indy pass. We did have some products. We had the peak pass, we had the max pass. So it was starting to happen, but you still had these very expensive season passes. And for those of you listening, Jeremy has them all archived on his website. And you can see that a season pass at Stowe was $2,300 in 2017. You know, this is not ancient history. This is, this is, you know, yesterday basically. So what's been your reaction, Jeremy? What are your thoughts on this rapid evolution of the multi-mountain pass market as Epic Icon Indie have entered into and really rapidly consolidated a lot of, most of actually, the large ski areas in New England. Well, I'm going to sound like Clint Eastwood, like, get off my lawn. But I uh, <laughs> I love the, the Max Pass when it was out, the, the brief time it was mm-hmm. out, in part because no one else really knew about it. And you got to ski all these areas and it was really inexpensive. And I also still kind of miss the original uh, incarnation of the Indy Pass before it had the larger areas on it. Because again, it was just kind of this under the radar thing and you got to experience a neat network of ski areas. I think the multi-area passes are good because it uh, allows people to ski more often. But I do worry about being a barrier to entry. Um, for some of these multi-area passes, the rack rate really needs to go up to to maximize the the revenue behind the scenes. And if you're thinking about you know trying to bring more people into the ski business, you know, someone who doesn't know anything about skiing, they're going to just think, all right, well I want to try skiing, and they just think of a large ski area because that's all they know of. Then they look on the website, they see the price, they go, well I'm never going to do that. So that's you know kind of the barrier to entry is that it drives the rack rate up, but um, hopefully there'll be some sort of a happy medium there, but I, I worry that if this continues for a while without some sort of adjustment, we might not have as many people entering uh, the sport of skiing in New England. Yeah, the the lift ticket rates have long been very high in the West, and people attribute that to the fact that if the lift day lift tickets cost so much, then it will drive people to buy the season pass. And we've started to see that philosophy transfer to the East. The peak day lift ticket at Stowe this year will hit one hundred ninety nine dollars. I'm sure that 200 plus is not far behind. Sugarbush and Killington are in the 180s, I think. I'll look that up and confirm. But what's your reaction to this trend of lift tickets starting to mirror their Western counterparts with these really out of reach day ticket prices? I think it's a great opportunity for the uh, small local areas to capitalize. But unfortunately, they don't really have the, the budget or the ability to go out into the broad masses and be able to advertise to folks who don't ski at all. Um, you know, whereas, you know, if you have a very, uh, 
well-known uh, name you, you can do. So I don't want to throw anyone out uh, <laughs> to the wolves on that one. Um, so I, I do worry about that, but um, it just, it seems like there, there must be some way to be able to find a happy medium with it. And I don't know what that is, but I hope we get there because it's one thing to be able to, to really jack up your skier visits and your revenue by getting people to ski more often. But it's another thing if you're not bringing more people in and, and it's a tough sport to get into. I mean, in some respects I would compare, um, not that I smoke, but I would compare skiing to smoking because that first time it's going to be awful and you're, you're going to be hurting. And in the case of skiing, you know, I, I guess I don't even know what cigarettes go for, but you know, it's not a large investment, whereas a lift ticket and then rentals, and then just to get the clothing and stuff, you're talking about a massive investment. And if you don't like it, then you have a problem. So if you can have a much lower barrier to entry, hopefully you get more people into it. But when you see prices like that, it's going to be very tough to bring new people into the sport. One big ski area and arguably the best ski area in New England that is not going to be on the Epic Icon Passes is Jay Peak, recently purchased by Pacific Group Resorts. That, of course, is Indy Pass's top redeeming ski area and I think a lot of folks are hoping that Jay stays with Indy, but um, setting that aside, what's your reaction to Pacific Group Resorts, which also owns Ragged, which we were just talking about, purchasing Jay Peak? Well, I think it's great that Jay Peak is out of receivership finally. That was talk about being stuck in, I guess, uh, regulatory purgatory for a while. Um, right. They they need some investment on the area, and I, I think for me that was really when I had a feeling, uh, just a sense that something wasn't right up there under the previous ownership when they're putting all this money into certain development, yet the on mountain infrastructure to an extent didn't seem like it was being updated. So I'm hoping that you know if we see Pacific Group do something similar to Ragged, where they really start addressing the infrastructure. I think like for instance on the state side. Um, that lift infrastructure is a bit dated. So they can do something to modernize that. I think that'll help. But, um, you know, they've made a go of ragged and no one else was able to figure that one out. So if, if they have that track record there, then hopefully they'll be able to do that, Jay, as well. All right. So you're in New Hampshire, as you said earlier. I, I think New Hampshire has sort of been a surprise for Vail Resorts. I, I think they didn't really know what to do with it. And strangely, they still group it on the Epic Day Pass with their ski areas in Ohio and Missouri, which makes me think they don't understand how nice those ski areas are or what they have. They really did struggle to open lifts and terrain and fully staff up last year. Vail has invested a lot in employees and particularly introduced a $20 an hour minimum wage, which is pretty good for New Hampshire. Do you think that Vail Resorts will have a better season in New Hampshire and that they've started to figure out how to run those mountains? I hope they do. Um, you know, I hope they learn that New Hampshire is a lot different than Vermont it's the ski areas themselves are dramatically different too. You know, in Vermont, you, those are really, most of their properties are ski resorts in New Hampshire. They're really ski areas. I mean, there is no resort at all to wildcat or crotchet. Those are literally ski areas. Um, but also, you know, it's just not to get political, but it is a different type of state. Um, so I think some of these top down edicts, um, you know, uh, people have talked about how, for instance, you know, the, some of the vaccine stuff did not go over well in New Hampshire with Vail last year. I'm hoping they're able to pick up those pieces because there were other places to go. And what I've heard is people went elsewhere, but I'm hoping that they're able to turn around. It looks like they are with the snowmaking. It looks a lot better now than it was last year, even with this mild weather, but also it seems like they are going to invest in these areas. You know, Atatash has been kind of sitting there for quite a while and they have that new fixed grip quad going in where those old Borvik double doubles were. 
And then mm-hmm. I think what's probably most exciting is that they're finally, and no one else could do this. What, you know, uh, ski couldn't do it. Um, Peak's going to do it, but it, uh, American ski company couldn't do it. Peak's going to do it, but uh, it looks like they're finally going to have a high speed detachable lift to this hop of that attach. <laughs> and I think that's going to get a lot of goodwill. So I'm hoping they've turned the corner um, because, you know, for these areas to be successful is good for everybody. So I, I really hope they've turned the corner and it seems like they're getting there. I still can't figure out on the ad attached point, why peak resorts took out that hall double that ran parallel to the triple before having a plan to upgrade the triple. Do you know anything about that? Like that's just the weirdest decision to me. Yeah. I, I don't know specifically about the lift. I know the lift was getting up there in age. So I don't know if they just decided that it wasn't worth maintaining anymore. And if that's the case, then you might as well take it off the mountain. But um, yeah, I, I think, I don't know what the cost would have been to continue operating, but I know they had some issues with the triple and they probably wish they had that double going. And there's been other instances of other skiers too, where they pulled something out and regretted it. But, um, I, I miss having a hall double. So <laughs> that always, I always have this pain in my heart whenever a hall double, uh, disappears. But, um, I think a new lift up to the top will really help that skiery a lot. All right, Jeremy. Well, I've taken enough of your time. I will give you your evening back. I really cannot thank you enough for all your insight tonight and also just for this incredible resource, which has been very, very valuable to me and my podcast. And I know a lot of folks who ski in New England really enjoy it as well. So thank you so much. I'm so glad we finally got to connect and hopefully we can make some turns together at some point this winter. Sounds great, Stuart. And please keep up the good work with everything you do. It's just fantastic. And I love this podcast and I'll be continuing to listen. That's Jeremy Clark, founder of NewEnglandSkiHistory.com. That was a terrific conversation. Just incredible insight and perspective. I really enjoyed that, Jeremy. Thank you so very much. And thank you for maintaining this amazing website so that all of us can tap into New England ski history. And thank you all very much for listening. 2023 is going to be absolutely stacked. I have the leaders of Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Palisades, Tahoe, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Vamp, Sun Peaks, and Stevens Pass booked for conversations. To get those episodes a moment they're live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow The Storm on Twitter and Instagram at StormSkiJournal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.